This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. Did you recognize that bird call? We'll be talking about that particular species of bird in just a moment when we return to Bird Hugger. What happens when a burnt out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hi, everybody. I think we've got a great show for you today. On today's show, we'll be talking about hummingbirds, those sweet little souls who cheer us up with their antics in the backyard. We'll also be discussing how to help turtles cross the road safely during egg-laying season, how to build a monarch migration way station. We'll also be talking about the developmental stages of baby birds, And also, since it is Lightning Safety Awareness Week, we're going to talk about lightning safety for birders. So just some updates about the show. I finally, finally got a microphone. Yay! It took seven weeks for the microphone I ordered to arrive in the mail. The COVID-19 situation has created some really serious delays in shipping. But I've got it now, and it is a real game changer when it comes to audio quality. So anyway, I don't know about you, but I am really enjoying my time in the garden right now. I am out in the garden every night until 9 (laughs) p.m. It is such a glorious feeling to be in the middle of all that beautiful scenery of trees and plants and birds, feeling the sun on my face and getting the good earth under my fingernails. Around 9 p.m., I can hear my husband's voice calling to me, wondering if we are going to have dinner. Food is the last thing on my mind, of course. But the sun is going down, and I hadn't even noticed it was getting darker. I sigh and pull myself away from my beautiful flowers and look around for one last glimpse of a queen bumblebee or a swallowtail butterfly. I have so much more to do in the garden, but it will have to wait until tomorrow. I reluctantly load my truck tub with pruning shears, hand trowel, and gloves and head back to the house slowly, drinking in the orange and pink ribbons of the setting sun. My heart is truly full of the gifts of the garden, and I know I will sleep the deep sleep that comes with a full day of working in the fresh air and sunshine and smelling the sweet fragrance of flowers. And now for our Voice in the Wilderness segment. So people often ask me, why do I plant native? I believe that just as we have responsibilities to our families, relatives, friends, and neighbors— We also have a responsibility to care for the wildlife and ecosystems we share with this beautiful home we call Earth. For nearly 100 years, the practice of horticulture has centered on forcing our backyards into submission through the use of toxic herbicides and insecticides, petroleum-based chemical fertilizers, and loud ear-splitting machinery like lawnmowers, leaf blowers, and weed whackers. But now, because so many of us have lost people we love to cancer, I know I have, We've become very wary of toxic solutions pushed by faceless megalithic corporations. Some of us are growing tired of killing living things in order to turn our backyards into an orderly extension of our living rooms. Maybe, just maybe, we would be happier letting nature be nature. 
What would be so awful about helping wild creatures like bumblebees and butterflies instead of poisoning them with sprays? Or allowing our backyards to become a peaceful oasis for nesting songbirds instead of drowning out their beautiful songs with lawnmowers and leaf blowers? What if we were stewards and protectors instead of destroyers? Something to think about. Did you recognize that bird call at the beginning of the show? That's the call of the ruby-throated hummingbird. That recording also includes the humming sound they make when flying, which is how they get their name. The natural history of this brightly colored little jewel on wings is greatly misunderstood by many people, so today we are going to debunk some long-held myths about the hummingbird. Hummingbirds reside chiefly in Central and South America, as well as many parts of the Caribbean. But each spring they migrate to North America to spend the summer mating and rearing their young. We are very lucky to have hummingbirds in our part of the world. Hummingbirds do not inhabit Europe, Africa, Asia, or Australia. The hummingbird is North America's smallest bird. The hummingbird is fast and can achieve speeds of up to 50 miles per hour. The bird can stop on a dime, hover like a miniature helicopter, fly backwards, and even upside down. Watching their aerial acrobatics as they compete with each other for dominion over the backyard nectar feeder makes for a lot of birdwatching fun. But because they are so tiny and so fast, some of their behavior is not so obvious. The general misconception is that the ruby-throated survives only on flower nectar and the nectar provided by feeders. This is not true. Like most birds, the hummer depends upon insect protein to survive. The hummingbird eats small insects along with their larvae and their eggs. And in fact, they eat hundreds of insects a day. They are constantly searching for them on flowers, leaves, and also the bark of trees. They enjoy eating ants, aphids, fruit flies, gnats, mosquitoes, weevils, and beetles. However, they have a particular fondness for spiders. They will also drink sap from the holes in trees drilled by woodpeckers. This sap contains water, but also essential minerals they need to survive. Access to insects becomes even more critical when they are rearing their young. The parent hummingbirds eat the insects and then regurgitate the parts into the throats of the babies. Some new research is suggesting the protein of insects is far more important to a hummingbird's survival than flower or nectar. While they can't go entirely without nectar, think of it as similar to drinking a cup of coffee for quick energy. In one study, hummingbird's stomach contents showed an overwhelming 79% of bugs compared to 21% nectar. Another misconception about hummingbirds involves torpor, or a periodic state of resting and lowered heart rate. This is how they often sleep, but it can also be due to extreme cold. Their core body temperature is 105 degrees, so when temperatures suddenly become very cold, they can go into a state of torpor, or energy-saving mode, for long periods. It can take 20 minutes to an hour until they are sufficiently warmed up and return to normal behavior. A hummingbird sitting at a feeder who appears to be asleep may not necessarily be sick or injured, but may merely be in a state of torpor. If you see a hummingbird sitting still for longer than an hour in broad daylight, please go to animalhelpnow.org to contact a wildlife rehabilitator local to your area. If you really want to help hummingbirds, plant native flowers, shrubs, and trees. Hummingbirds really enjoy nectar from all of these. Red tubular-shaped flowers are very popular with hummingbirds, and they particularly love cardinal flower, bleeding heart, columbine, 
trumpet honeysuckle, coneflowers, and also monarda, which is also known as bee balm. You can also really help hummingbirds by tracking their migration on journeynorth.org or hummingbirdcentral.com so you can have nectar ready for them as soon as they arrive in your region. After migrating 2,000 miles, they are often hungry and exhausted, and having your nectar feeder ready to go can help them recover from their long journey much quicker. Exciting new research about hummingbirds is showing that these smart little birds know when a plant is about to refill the nectar in its blossoms. Some plants have a nectar refill time of 20 minutes. Others may take a day or perhaps two days. The hummingbird has been shown to jealously guard areas of the garden where flowers are actively refilling their nectar, so they get first dibs on the sugar. Even more exciting is that scientists have discovered hummingbirds see colors that we as humans cannot. This important finding shows ultraviolet light from the sun creates colors in the hummingbird's natural habitat that helps them zoom in on the flowers loaded with the most nectar. Also, insects are more readily seen through this ultraviolet light. Hummingbirds have four cones in their eyes. We only have three. There is a whole world out there that they can see and we cannot. These special little birds have a lot to teach us about the natural world. And now let's talk a moment about turtles. Why did the turtle cross the road? No, this is not a chicken joke. Female wild aquatic turtles cross the road because they are looking for a sunny and sandy area to lay their eggs. You will start to notice turtles emerging from the reedy mud at the bottom of vernal pools, ponds, and lakes to undergo their annual egg-laying sojourn around Memorial Day weekend. The egg-laying of turtles, and this includes snapping turtles, wood turtles, and painted turtles, may continue until mid-July. The best time to tell when turtles will be drawn out of the water to start their travels is the level of humidity. That first spike in humidity, which marks the beginning of summer for so many of us, also sends a signal to the turtles to start their search for the perfect nesting site. On that day, you may see a dozen or more turtles emerge from a single body of water. Wild aquatic turtles do not feel safe being away from their bog pond or lake, which is why they will quickly dig a hole, lay their eggs, and make their way steadily back to the water. I don't have to tell you how hazardous this journey is for these brave ladies. Many are hit by cars and trucks and are killed. Others suffer serious permanent injuries. You can help turtles survive by doing these six things. Number one, when you see a turtle on the road, Please be kind and slow down. Pull over if it is safe to do so and help escort the turtle in the direction she was heading until she safely reaches the dirt. Never reverse a turtle's course. She will only turn around later and end up back on the road in harm's way. Always be careful if you have to move a turtle. It is best to use a plastic storage container and a shovel. Gently coax the turtle into the box and then carry the box to the opposite side of the road. You never want to drag a snapping turtle backward by the tail, as you can rupture the animal's spine, rendering it permanently paralyzed. Number two, it is never a good idea to transport a turtle to another pond or lake. A turtle will not adapt to a different environment, since they are loyal only to their natal birth area. If you displace a turtle, that animal will spend the rest of its life trying to get back to its point of origin, and most likely will be hit by a car. Also, a turtle's immune system is only resistant to the pathogens of the environment it is born into. 
putting a turtle into a different body of water only causes disease and passes diseases to other unsuspecting wildlife. Number three, if you see a turtle that has has been hit by a car, call your local wildlife rehabilitator right away. Time really is of the essence. You can contact animalhelpnow.org to find the closest rehabilitator in your area. Turtles are tough, even when their shells have been cracked by the impact of a speeding car. A wildlife rehabilitator can stabilize the turtle and save its life. Number four, never attempt to drive over a turtle. Some cars are built low to the ground, and the undercarriage can cause quite an injury, which occurs when the bridges between the top shell and the bottom shell collapse, crushing the turtle's internal organs. This type of injury usually proves fatal. Number five, snapping turtles are not the cold-blooded killers some people like to portray them to be. Although not the most attractive creatures, they are gentle giants and prefer to mind their own business. Keep your distance, and they will too. The snapping turtle, unfortunately, is often demonized by people who don't understand its natural history. The snapper prefers carrion, or dead animals, not live animals. They are often blamed for disappearing ducklings and goslings. However, that is usually the result of other predators, like weasels and minks. Snapping turtles are the great unsung heroes of our water bodies. They are referred to as the janitors of our lakes and ponds, since they routinely patrol the bottom of the water to eat muck and detritus. According to wildlife biologists, if it were not for snapping turtles, our lakes and ponds would lose their crystal clear clarity and turn muddy. If you have a snapping turtle in your pond, consider yourself lucky. You have a full-time cleaning machine keeping your water clear. And finally, number six, incubation of aquatic turtle eggs takes several months, which means you will see tiny baby turtles hatching from their eggs and trying to scurry across the road toward the water during the month of August. Painted turtles usually lay between five to eight eggs in a clutch, and snapping turtles lay 20 to 40 eggs, but have been known to lay up to 60 eggs. Pull your car over and allow these little ones to find their way home. So now I wanted to talk about what I am growing in my garden. I just planted four new types of plants, four types of native plants, and I wanted to mention what they are. The first one is hairy wood mint. Likes a shady area, medium wet to medium dry soil, grows to about three feet, and it can survive in zones three to eight. You'll see the blossoms appear in June, July, August, and September, and pollinators absolutely love it. That's the hairy wood mint. The second plant that I'm planting all over my backyard is the rose milkweed. It's also known as swamp milkweed. Now, this plant grows to four feet, and it prefers full sun to partial sun in slightly moist soil. It, too, seems to thrive well in zones three to nine. And you'll see the flowers appear in June, July, and August. The third plant I'm planting in my garden is the spotted bee balm. Now, I bought a really big tray of 38 of these seedlings because I really like Monarda. This is Monarda punctata. It grows up to two feet, does well in zones three to nine, and it likes dry soil. It's also referred to as dotted horse mint. It really likes full sun to part shade, So it's what you call a liminal plant. You can plant it along 
an area that has full sun during one part of the day and then is thrust into shade the rest of the day. It seems to do quite well there. And you'll see those blooms appear in July, August, and September. And again, this is a bumblebee's delight, a pollinator's gourmet buffet, if you will. They really love the spotted bee balm. Provides a lot of nectar. And then finally, I'm planting New England aster. I already have New England aster, but I wanted to add more because aster is one of the primary plants used by the monarch. If you're trying to build a monarch migration way station, then you need New England aster. These plants can grow up to five feet tall. They do well in a wet to medium wet to dry soil. They are fine in zones three to eight, have a lovely purple flower, which you'll see in August through October. And they're actually drought tolerant and deer resistant, which is okay. And they do tolerate some amount of light shade, which is great. So those are the four types of native plants I'm planting in my yard right now, because I am getting ready for the monarch butterfly to come through the yard while it's migrating at the end of August and into September. Now, let's say you do want to plan and create a monarch way station. It all starts with milkweed. You plant milkweed in all sections of your garden. You want to stay away from tropical milkweed and instead opt for swamp milkweed and common milkweed. Be sure the plants or seeds you buy have not been treated with insecticides like neonicotinoids. The female monarch will lay her eggs only on milkweed. You will see the eggs attached to the underside of the leaves. Once hatched, they will munch down every inch of the plant, so don't be disturbed when your milkweed turns into a, a strip stem. And then you're also going to want, in a giant circle, plant several dozen Joe Pieweed plants. Joe Pieweed loves full sun, and by that I mean six to eight hours a day. And be sure the Joe Pieweed is less than 30 feet from the milkweed that you planted. These native perennials can reach a height of eight feet, which makes it easy for the monarch to find when migrating overhead. Monarchs have a preference for the nectar of Joe Pieweed and will flock to the area where you have planted them. It's really not unusual to see 50, 60 monarch butterflies clustered on Joe Pieweed all at the same time. It's quite a sight to behold. Alongside the Joe Pieweed, inside the circle, also plant pink and white flocks. It's another monarch favorite, as well as the yellow native goldenrod. Goldenrod is irresistible to monarchs and essential to their survival. All three of these plants re-sow themselves quite readily from seed every year, so you will only have to buy the plants once, and you will only have to plant them once, and let nature do the rest. And then, of course, no monarch waste station would be complete without a tart of a hydrangea tree. The nectar from this tree is like a beacon to monarchs. And then finally, jewelweed. Jewelweed is a native orchid with an enticing yellow-orange color that attracts monarchs. Think of jewelweed as a landing strip leading your monarchs to the way station that you have created. So here it is. It's just the beginning of June now as I'm recording this show. If you want to be ready for the monarchs and you need to start planning now and planting now, so you'll have some plants to offer the monarch when it comes through during migration at the end of August and September. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. 
you will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And now on to the email mailbag. Last week, we received an email asking why the parent birds were kicking babies out of the nest. This email comes from Tim of Beverly, Massachusetts. We have a large tree at the side of our house, and my wife and I noticed a nest. Below the nest on the ground were several baby birds. It looked like the parents were kicking them out of the nest. Why would they do this to their own babies? To answer your question, while it may look that way, the baby birds are actually pushing themselves out of the nest. Right now is fledging time for many songbirds in New England. Now might be a good time to review the stages of development of a baby bird because there is one stage that is particularly confusing to people. So basically, there are four main stages of development which take usually 15 to 21 days from beginning to end. And it starts with the first stage, which is hatchling. This is when a baby bird is just hatched from the egg, but is usually naked and blind and needs the warmth of the parents to stay alive. Then there is the nestling stage, which is the second stage. The neonate has grown feathers, his eyes are open, and he's starting to vocalize. The parents are feeding the baby every 20 minutes, and this speeds rapid growth of the youngster. Their metabolisms are very high. That's why they need food every 20 minutes when they're at that stage. Okay, now we come to the third stage, and this is where most of the confusion is for people. The third stage is not the fledging stage. It is the branchling stage. This is the stage where the nestling discovers it has wings and starts to become fearless, perching on the edge of the nest and flapping his wings, sort of like the way a child will say, hey, ma, look at me, look at what I can do. And then next thing you know, the branchling is hanging out on the branch of an adjacent tree. And then you know what's coming next. He's not quite the expert flyer because his wings are not fully developed and he has no tail feathers or just the stub of tail feathers and he cannot steer. Think of the tail feathers as a bird's rudder, allowing the bird to steer right and left and to swoop and dive. So at this stage, he can only go in one direction and that's straight, which often means straight to the ground. A baby bird at this stage is not quite ready for prime time, but it happens all the time. It's totally natural. Let's call it the rambunctious teenage years. The parents merely feed the birds from the ground. The youngster will hop across your backyard for three to four days with the parents in tow until the tail feathers grow in and they can take off and fly. At that point, they're on their own. And that is stage four or fledging. So the parents are not kicking the babies out. They are leaving the nest out of their own curiosity and the desire to show off their newfound skills. Okay, and now for our birding segment. We're going to talk today about lightning safety for birders. And of course, as everyone knows, especially if you're listening to this podcast, birding has become one of the most popular national pastimes. There are millions of Americans trekking through fields and woods with binoculars in search of birds on their life list. So now we all know how enjoyable this hobby is. It's great to get outdoors and it's great to see nature, but it is important to keep some safety tips in mind, particularly when a thunderstorm develops. Each year, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, issues their updated guidelines pertaining to lightning safety. It's been interesting because over the last several decades, scientists have apparently underestimated the reach and power of lightning 
NOAA has designed an outreach campaign aiming to re-educate Americans about how to avoid lightning strikes, as well as what to do if someone is actually struck. So what is it that has actually changed? Well, for years, scientists have believed lightning could strike from a distance of up to 10 miles, and that, for years, had been the general consensus. However, several years ago, a group of ice fishermen on Sebago Lake in Maine were struck by lightning from a storm that was 20 miles away. So this, of course, has caused weather researchers to adjust their theories, and they just updated their information after the Sebago Lake incident, only to get another report of lightning striking from 25 miles away. So how does lightning do so much damage? A single bolt of lightning is five times hotter than the sun, and it travels down toward the earth at 300,000 miles per hour. It packs a wallop of 300 million volts in a single flash. The heat of a lightning strike is very intense, 50,000 degrees. Now that's hot. It's hard to believe, but lightning bolts hit the United States 25 million times a year. And those strikes can occur during any season, including winter. Hundreds of Americans are struck every year. 10% of these people die from injuries, which usually are from cardiac arrest. The remaining 90% that do survive often suffer permanent physical disabilities. Sometimes a person can take a direct hit, which is usually fatal. Or in some cases, an individual can be struck by ground current. This was the case in Gilmanton, New Hampshire, a couple of years ago when 23 Boy Scouts were zapped while waiting out a storm, seated at a metal table under a tarp in the woods. According to Associated Press reports, the lightning struck a nearby tree and then traveled 60 feet through the ground and then came up through the metal table and chairs. The Scouts had spiderweb-shaped burns spread across their bodies, mostly on their chests, their arms, and their hands. They were rushed to local area hospitals and... Fortunately, all of them survive. Now, what is another change in education around lightning safety? NOAA has revised its safety tips. For years, they advised people caught in a storm to hunker down on the ground and shield their heads when they felt the hair on their arms stand up. The hair on your arms standing up, that's actually a sign of an impending strike. So what they've done is they've revamped their safety campaign And they started this about 10 years ago with this new warning, when thunder roars, go indoors. Lightning strike deaths are most commonly due to people ignoring the sound of thunder until the storm is right on top of them and it is too late. So NOAA and the National Weather Service are hoping that this revised approach will save many lives. And the truth is, you know, there is absolutely no safe place outside during a thunderstorm. If you can hear thunder, then you can be struck. So let's say you're out birding and suddenly find yourself in the path of thunder and lightning. Basically, you're advised to run like hell. That's because theoretically, you parked your car close by, and you should run for that car as quickly as you can. The storm will last longer than the 15 minutes it takes to get back to the safety of your car. You're going to want to avoid moving through the highest area and avoid trees. You definitely don't want to be the tallest object in the area. Stay away from isolated trees, towers, and utility poles, and you also want to stay away from metal fences and wires. Let's say you're in a boat while observing birds, and a storm comes up on you. 
Try to get to shore as quickly as possible and find protective cover. More and more lakefront property owners in New England are posting special flags on their docks. These are a signal you can safely pull in at their property and wait out the storm. Now, let's say you cannot get to land. What you're going to want to do is lie flat in the bottom of the boat. Separate yourself as far away from your cell phone as you can. Drop anchor if you have an anchor on your boat. Make sure you're wearing a life jacket because a lightning bolt can knock you unconscious and throw you out of the boat. So now Noah is saying it's important to remember the 30-30 rule. If the time delay between the sight of lightning and the sound of thunder is less than 30 seconds, then you're going to want to find shelter. And then you're going to want to wait at least 30 minutes after the last bolt of lightning or sound of thunder before leaving that protection. Did you know that 50% of strikes occur after a storm has passed overhead and people have come outside believing it was safe? New research is showing that lightning strikes can also occur ahead of an oncoming storm outside of the rain zone. That's really a very important point. So now, here are some tips for birders to stay safe from lightning. You always want to bird with a buddy. It's not a great idea to go birding alone, for obvious reasons. Check the weather forecast before heading out and stay aware of any approaching storms. Our cell phones have these great weather apps now, so if you're within range, you should be able to get the latest up-to-date weather forecast for your area. Tell someone where you're headed and when you will be back. You want to stay in marked areas and approved paths. And that's so in case you do get into trouble, people will be able to find you quickly and get the help for you that you need. Bring your cell phone in case you need to call 911. And it's always a good idea to keep a first aid kit in your car. Now, if the worst happens, know that you can touch a lightning strike victim without being zapped yourself. If the victim's heart is not beating, you can save his or her life by performing CPR. If the victim's heart is beating, but they are not breathing, emergency mouth breathing can save his or her life. If you are enjoying this show and love what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. So to continue my personal story, I'm sure you can guess what happened next. Things came together in just the right way, and we were able to move to Key West. Forty years ago, Key West was an affordable place to live. Rents were cheap, and a person could make a living waitressing or bartending on Duval Street. But then the hotel chains moved in and bought up property all over Key West. Property values went sky high, and people who thought they would always have a home in Key West suddenly found themselves moving further up the Keys to Big Pine and Marathon in order to afford their rent. Slowly, over the course of that 40 years, Key West changed from a quaint fishing village, or what some people would call a drinking village with a fishing problem, to a high-priced resort town. It is pretty much impossible to find a hotel room in Key West for less than $300 a night. Some hotel rooms run $400 to $600 a night, especially during high season, which of course is wintertime, and that's when everyone wants to come down there to escape the freezing cold. After many months of searching, we found we were able to afford a small condo, and I do mean small. It measured a grand total of 580 square feet. You could not open a drawer in the refrigerator at the same time because there wasn't enough room in the kitchen. But you know what? I didn't care. I was in Key West, and I was over the moon excited. I had always been a t-shirt, shorts, and sandals kind of gal. I was not a big fan of the freezing cold and the snow. 
and I have to say, I loved walking up and down the charming streets of Old Town Key West. There is such a deep sense of history there. Many of the stately old homes belong to ship captains, and the local historical society has worked very hard to preserve antique historical homes. Between 1680 and 1730, what some people would call the golden age of pirating, many residents of Key West became rich by looting ships that ran aground on the rocky shoals off the waters surrounding Key West. The waters around the island were reputed to be diabolically dangerous. In fact, Key West was originally called Cayahueso by Spanish settlers, which means island of bones. There are historical homes in Key West where every room is filled with priceless furniture and other booty robbed from these ships. Back then, it was called wrecking. Wrecking is the practice of taking valuables from a shipwreck that has foundered or run aground on coral. For several centuries, it was an important economic activity on the Keys. In the 19th century, there were shipwrecks nearly every week, and plundering was a very popular pastime. Today, of course, we call it marine salvage, and you have to have a license to unload a wrecked ship. The contents of the ship are then sold or auctioned off at salvage auctions. But there is still plenty of plundering going on in Key West, meaning plundering of the tourists. It is truly a pirate's hideaway. So while I was enjoying all the sights in Key West, I could not stop thinking about sea turtles and how great it would be to finally be able to help an injured animal. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now.